several years ago, my wife and I and my mom and dad and brother were in a Toys R Us. Rest in peace, Toys R Us, okay? I mean, it's just my, part of my childhood died when they went out of business. So we were in this Toys R Us, and this was before we had Judson, our little boy, and we were looking for a present for someone. I don't remember who the present was for, but that's not really a part of the story, so we can move on. So we get to this place where... Um, I, my brother and my dad and myself are on one aisle, and Amy's on the other aisle next to us. And this guy proceeds to be really, it's around Christmas time, this guy proceeds to be extremely rude to my wife, and I heard it. And I'm a, I'm a short dude, but you don't want to see me angry. I don't get angry very often, but I come around that corner, and I'm getting in, and this dude, and I realize at this point, this dude is big, and I have made a mistake but I'm not turning back because he just rude to my wife. And I, you know, I got, I feel like I'm, you know, 12 feet tall and I go up and I get in that dude's face. And I'm like, excuse me, that is my wife. And the dude had terror on his face and he started backing up and I was like, yes. <laughs> okay. Then I realized my dad and brother had followed me behind him and he was like, I'm about to get whooped by these dudes. And I want to tell you something. Being a minister of the gospel and elders in the church, and here's the thing that I want you to get from our, our, our passage today. We have, as elders and teachers in the church, a responsibility to stand up and rebuke false teachings that put our church in danger. Now, here's the cool thing about it. So when me and Tom stand up, it's like us going up against the 12 foot. You know, Satan and his demons and, and the false teacher, we walk up there just by ourselves. We're like, stop. But the good thing about it is we got backup. We got the teachings of the apostles and we got Jesus himself and the power of the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so the darkness flees and runs. But that does not change this. See, here's part of, part of what the church needs is a rebuke needs to be part of or a correction needs to be part of the church life. I know You're thinking, what about grace and mercy? It's there. But there are times when teachers of the word in a church to keep the the church safe must stand up for the truth and do it in a in a powerful, strong way. And that's what our text says today. If you're new with us, we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Titus, and here's what I'd like us to do. We're gonna do something that that is dangerous for attention spans, but necessary because this is the word of our God. And so, if you would, we're going to start in Titus 1.1 and read down to our text today in verse 10. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time... He manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted to the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, that is what we have previously talked about in the last couple of weeks. And just to give you a, in case you weren't here, just in case you forgot, what happened in the very beginning was this. Paul is writing this letter to his son in the faith named Titus. Titus is a, a follower of Jesus. Am I getting like, is there like a little on the end? Oh, hold on a second. testing. Do you hear the Okay, good. Perfect. We're back. So here's what let me give you let me give you a little context again. Paul's writing this letter to his son in the face Timothy. They apparently have planted some churches in Crete. These churches need to be put in order. Part of putting them in order is getting men, elders, these this plurality of men called to preach and teach and qualified to preach and teach the good news. In verse 9 it says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so these men are supposed to be able to teach what is true, what accords with the gospel as delivered through, through Jesus, through Paul, and through the word of God. They're also to be able to rebuke people. And then we see who they need to rebu- rebuke in the next verses. So if you will, we're going to read verse 10 and follow him. It says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, to the pure, All things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So there's a comparison and a contrast here. There's these guys who are sound in doctrine, and their lives... Our lives follow that with truth and goodness. And that's the guys we see who are called to be elders in verses 5 through 9. They're contrasted with these people who have false teaching. And false teaching leads to ungodliness. And so here's the thing. Here's, here's what we got to understand first and foremost out of this whole thing. Sound doctrine equals godliness. That's what he goes back to in verse 1. He says, I'm writing to you people in the church that you might have the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So knowing the truth, understanding the biblical teachings, also known as doctrine, will lead to right behavior. The converse is true. If you have unholy teaching, unholy scriptures, unholy, unsound theology, unsound doctrine, unsound teaching, ungodliness will naturally follow. And that's what his point is in verse 10. And he describes these ungodly teachers here. And the whole point of, of what he's asking Titus to do, and the, on, by extension, the elders in this church, is to stand up and rebuke these people. Now, notice here, I'm going to show you, this is the major, major thrust of what he's getting at. Look with me in verse 10. Or ver, yeah, verse 10. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those at the circumcision party. So there's this group in the church, and there's many of them, who are teaching false things, and their character is showing that. In verse 11, he says this, They must be silenced. 
Okay, this is not like calling for a hit. Okay, that's not what like they got. You got to snuff them out. That's not what he's getting at. But the word has. I know you probably didn't jump there. Okay, like Paul's like mafia is like the Sopranos of the Bible. No, what he's saying when he's talking about silence here, he said it's kind of has the idea. This word has the idea of muzzling them, not giving them a chance to speak, to silence their false doctrine in the church. And here is why you should do that. Verse eleven. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so they are upsetting whole families. First off, let's think about families. This is actually probably better translated because the word is whole houses instead of families. And you say families live in houses. But the early church, most of them didn't have places to meet that were outside of homes. Most of the people in the early church met in homes or houses. And so most of the churches in the New Testament were house churches. And so this is likely that the false teachers were upsetting churches. And this word for upsetting here is not like, just, it's, not, it's not just, well, that offends me. It's not, that's not where we're going here. Because the work of someone who teaches the Bible is to offend you with God's word, okay? These guys are turning up tables. In fact, this same word for upsetting is used of Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 15, when he walks in the temple and starts turning over tables, and he's got a whip. So this is not just a little bit of turmoil. It says this false teaching in the church is creating all this havoc in individual families' houses probably, but also in the churches that meet in house churches. And so these false teachers, they need to be silenced. And then furthermore, here is the major thrust of what Paul is calling Titus to do. If you go down in verse 13, it says, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And so here, here is the two reasons that Paul wants, to, wants him, to, Titus, and the other elders to correct this teaching. Number one, false teaching can turn things up on its ear. If you want to look at the history of cults, most of them, especially the modern cults in America, have their roots and beginnings in Christianity, and they are morphed over time by false teachers, and they lead people down to death and destruction. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, they all have the same. When they, one of them rolls up to your house, their language sounds a lot like our language. And you talk about grace, and like, oh, we got that too. Talk about Jesus. Oh yeah, well, he's there too. You know what? You, uh, you we oh you want to talk about yeah? There's all this, and then you get to realizing that a Mormon, they believe that Jesus became God, and that they think that you can become God. And now you have diverted from Scripture, and now you're in this. The whole place is upset. And then you got the Jehovah's Witnesses that they don't they they believe something completely different. They don't believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity at all. So we have these, these things that are close, but not exactly there, and upsetting whole groups of people in whole churches. It is very important to know what you believe is true and why you believe it is true and to be in accord with the Scriptures because Paul is, is saying here, in the midst of all this grace and truth in the church, that there must be a silencing of those who teach contrary to Scripture and a sharp rebuke of those who are teaching 
teaching contrary. Now, some of you have read the book of Galatians. In fact, we've, I've been reading the book of Galatians with a whole bunch of guys, and it talks about bearing one another's burdens. And, and when you correct somebody, if anyone's found in sin, to correct that person, but to do it gently, gently. Well, that is a person in sin, not necessarily a false teacher. In the scriptures, if you notice a false teacher, the gloves come off when a false teacher comes up. It's like, all right, let's do this thing, all right? It's not, it's not like, listen, you're going to need to stop teaching that. It's like, stop teaching that. You're going to hell. I'm going to cut you, okay? That's where it goes. Rebuke them sharply. And there's a reason why. Let's, let's look in the text in verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Note the reason for a rebuke and a correction here for Paul. Yes, it's because they're upsetting the church. The second reason is so that they might be returned to the truth of the faith. The reason to stand against truth is for the sake of the church and for the sake of the gospel. The the other reason to rebuke and correct someone in the church is so that the person who is in error might turn from their error and come back to the truth. That's the purpose and that's the point. To turn people away from darkness and turn them towards the light. I want you to get that. When we preach truth, and you're supposed to stand for truth, and you're supposed to be a witness for truth, you, you are actually being loving even if your words come in a contradictory manner. In our culture now, the, own, the greatest sin you can do, or one of the greatest sins you could do, is to have a contrary opinion to the rest of the culture. You got that, Right? If you have any type of contrary opinion to what the culture, the made zeitgeist of the day thinks, then you are now a bigot, and you are way out there. You're either a far lefty or a far righty. You are way out there, and you are out of touch, and we're going to slam you on Twitter, and we're going to crucify you in the media because you did not come and bow down at the altar of the cultural understanding of this issue. You know that's the case, right? And as Christians, and we have, and some, some of us rightfully do, we have had some bad reputations from some bad religious people who missed out grace on grace when that was in the Bible. they like, oh, we overlooked that, and we just want to go just, just judgment. And they've been harsh and hateful in the way they talk about truth. But here is the good news for us. We are to be those who stand for truth firmly, sharply at times, especially if there are false teachers in the church. But to do it in a way, the way we do it is not unloving, even if it's perceived that way. Because the truth will turn someone for error, from error, darkness, and destruction. So it's not wrong to tell my son not to run into the road with a knife. Like, running with a knife's bad, right? Tell your kids, run with, don't give them knives, don't give them scissors, okay? This is Parenting 101. And then don't let them run out in the street. But let's say Judson wanted to do that. And I was like, Judson, if you run out, like, it's dangerous to run with that knife. It's dangerous to run out in the street. And he was like, I disagree with you, Father. In fact, all the people in my school think it is wonderful and safe to run with knives out into the street. Do they really believe that, son? With all of their heart. Oh, they must be sincere in their belief, so therefore it's okay. Sincerity obviously equals truth, right? And if you really... That, If you don't do this, you won't be like everybody else. Do you know it's unloving for me to say, well, if that's what the culture thinks, go ahead. 
Here's I-40. Got a couple of sharp knives. Have fun. That's ridiculous. And Paul's point here is, is that it is okay and necessary, especially for the elders in the church, but for anyone who sees false teaching that does not accord with the gospel or the scriptures to stand up and to make corrections, to not allow somebody of, that's teaching something false to come and to muzzle them, to not let them speak in the church. Secondly, to try to restore them. Why? What does verse 13 says? Rebuke them sharply. Correct them very sternly. Why? That they may be sound in the faith which is the same word we had for sound doctrine, which means that they might be healthy in the faith. Remember this, doctrine makes a difference. If you have sound, healthy doctrine, godliness will occur. Godliness will be an outflow. If you have poor doctrine, poor teaching, poor gospel, you will have ungodliness be its outcome. And note this, Look what Paul says about them in verse, verse 10. So that's the major thrust. Now he characterizes for us these people who are teaching a false gospel. Look in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Then you bumped, and then it says they must be silenced, verse 11, that they are upsetting whole families by teaching teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. And so his point here is, listen, these guys are different than the elders. If you go back up, pop up, if you would, back to first to uh the, to verse 5, or verse 6, and he gives the qualification of these elders, and they says this is, this is a whole bunch of good things about them and their character. They must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, the children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They are, the overseers must be good stewards and above reproach. They must not be arrogant or quick-tempered tempered or drunkards or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitables, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. If those things are applied to your life, you are following the Lord closely. Now, in, in antithesis to that, look in verse 10. It says, there are many in the church who are insubordinate. What does it mean to be insubordinate? Some of you know what it means to be insubordinate. If you're at your job and your boss tells you to do something and you're like, no. First off, you probably won't keep your job for very long. Secondly, that is insubordination. Now, what does it mean to be insubordinate in the church? Insubordinate in the church means a couple of things. First off, it's to be not under the authority or to buck the authority of the apostles, which we see in the scriptures, the gospel, and the scriptures. Also, it means to buck the, the, the authorities God has placed in the local church, elders. Now, I want to be real clear about that. There are some elders, pastors who abuse their power. That is not called just because of the position. They have, the elders and the pastors in our churches must accord, their behavior must accord with the qualifications and the preaching of the gospel and the scriptures. Their authority lies in that. So to be insubordinate is to, is to turn away from what the good news says, from what the, teach, the clear teaching 
of Scripture and that in the church. So to be insubordinate is one of the characteristics of these people who have thrown off doctrine. Secondly, we see this. They're empty talkers. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and (laughs) there's already laughter happening, okay? And they're just talking and you know they don't know what they're talking about and you know that you're not listening. Like you just, you're watching it happen. It's like, and they just keep talking and you're like, I have checked out. I got this really good in my brain. I can just go, I can go wherever I want to. I'm in Jamaica in my brain and they're, you know, and I'm an island breezes over here, okay? And you're like, and they're talking and they're chatting and they're doing all this stuff and they have no content to what they're saying. They just like to hear themselves talk. That is what we got here. These false teachers have arisen from the church in Crete. They are insubordinate. They are turning against the teachings of the gospel and the, the, the leadership in the church that's pointing people to the gospel. They're insubordinate, but they're also empty talkers, which means likely they don't really have a firm grasp of what they're saying, but what they're saying is empty, and it doesn't have any weight to it. Not only that, they, when they, if you got car advice from me about how to fix your car, that would be empty talk. I could tell you, yeah, you got to put some uh, fluid in your blinkers and uh, turn the flange that way, okay? Don't listen to that. Got to put some oil in your transistor. I mean, you're like just stuff that you're, I mean, I know I'm better than that, but you get it. If you, were, if you heard me talk about cars, that's empty talk. That is talk without knowledge, okay? Now, if you got Mitch over here who is a truck mechanic and he talks to you, that's not empty talk. That's like, mechanics speak about what he knows. Likely, these Cretans just know enough about doctrine and the Old Testament to be dangerous. So it's very careful who you listen to. These people are empty talkers. They don't have much. They they don't have sound doctrine. They don't even know much, but they're talking. And in their talking, here's what they're doing. They are deceiving people because it says they are insubordinate. They're empty talkers and deceivers. They don't even realize how much they're deceiving people because their heads are so empty and their their chat is so empty that they don't even know that they're deceiving people is what the idea here in the text is. Which I'm going to tell you something. That's one of the things that Paul talks about about elders. They must not be a new believer. Do you know why? Because most of the time new believers aren't very sound in doctrine. There's many reasons, but that's one of them. And what's the worst thing in the world is someone who's very confident and very wrong? You know what I'm saying? Really confident and really wrong is a bad combo. You got the, you imagine really confident skydiving instructor who does not know what he's doing. That can go really wrong. A person in the church who's really confident that they got it right, but they don't know the scriptures well enough to teach it, can go really wrong. And that's what's happening in Crete. They're deceiving people. Even if, it's un- even if it is unintentional, they are leading people down towards false doctrine. And then we see this, especially those of the circumcision party. Circle that. We're coming back to that. They're teaching the wrong thing. That's what the circumcision party goes on. If you, ver- you jump down with me, down to uh, verse 11, we know that they're messing families up. It says, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching what shameful gain they ought not to teach. So they're teaching what they ought not to teach for shameful gain. So these guys not only are not, they are, they are teaching to get 
something for themselves, whether it's pride or whether it's money. Their teaching is not from a a pure heart that wants to lead people to God. Their teaching here and self-described is for shameful gain, that which is not good. They are preaching and teaching for themselves. You, You have seen this in the wider world of Christianity, these people who teach for shameful gain. If you are ever in a situation where someone comes to you and asks you to pray and give so that they might have a private airplane, you have wandered into some terrible, terrible theology, guaranteed. And that happens a lot. They're working for their own shameful gain. They are not working for the gospel. They're not working for the good news. They are working for their own gain. This is what happens when your doctrine is skewed. You don't see Jesus as the center, Jesus as glorious, the gospel as our as our measuring line. You see yourself. Pride takes over. Ungodliness, ungodly teaching, unsound teaching leads to ungodliness. That is what Paul's point here is. That's why these people need to be rebuked and that they need to be silenced because they are screwing up the church that it belongs to Jesus, that Paul and Titus and these elders are being held accountable for. And then he goes on and he quotes, this gets a little harsh, But Paul, sometimes I told you, he takes the gloves off when it comes to false teachers. Verse 12, it says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own day said, Cretans, that's people from Crete where this letter is written to, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now notice, he first off quoted someone else that's from Crete who said that. Okay? Like, here's the thing. This is Hartsville, Tennessee. You know I'm not from Hartsville, Tennessee. Now I live here, but I'm not dumb enough to say something bad about Hartsville, Tennessee. Do you know why? Because I'm not from here. And they'll tell me real quick, you ain't from here, boy. I "I know, okay? So shut your mouth, all right? (laughs) Now, if you're from here and you got the cred, you can say some things and get away with some things that old Florida boy can't get away with, right? So what does Paul do to get his point across? He quotes one of their poets, And he says, you know even what the own people of Crete say. They are lazy, evil beasts, and liars. And these false teachers are proving those things to be true. These these characteristics stand in contrast to God's man, God's men who are called to lead the church, the elders and the and and the teachers. And so we see what we see in this text is Paul imploring and commanding Timothy, stand up to these guys. Their ungodliness is going to lead to, their ungodly doctrine will lead to ungodliness in the church. You have to stop that. And note this, it has become cool in some, some circumstances, in some circles in theology to think, doctrine doesn't matter. What you do is what matters. That, we are skating on some dangerously thin ice because doctrine drives are, are doing our faith. They are, that is part of it. Doctrine makes a different difference. Sound doctrine equals godliness. Just look at the elders in the passage we read. But unsound doctrine produces unsound, ungodly people. So knowledge of God's truth leads to godliness. False knowledge leads to ungodliness. That's why Paul says these men need to be silenced for the sake of the church because they're upsetting house churches and for the, for the sake of their own soul so that they might turn to the truth. 
Now, I want you to notice something in verse 11. We've seen the, their character. We also need to see what they were teaching. Paul gives us a little insight into what these people were teaching. And this is, this is a problem, what he's about to talk about here, this problem of the, the false doctrine they're teaching. It's one of the major doctrines, false doctrines, that the church has to struggle with. And here's what we got. It says, in verse 10, For they, there are many who are insubordinate, evil talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, first off, that's very weird because if I was invited to a circumcision party, I would say, no, that sounds terrible, okay? But we're going somewhere with this. Go down into verse 13. This testimony, he's like, they're lazy gluttons, evil beasts. He said, this testimony is true, verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So here's the nature of their false gospel that they're believing, of their unsound doctrine. It has to do with Jewish rituals. And these people were likely Jews who had been converted to Christianity who now want to return back to their Judaism and their Jewish ways. Yes, they want to believe in the Messiah, but they also believe that you need to be saved. It's not faith alone and Christ alone. It's faith plus follow all the Old Testament laws and rituals, including circumcision. If you need, Google that so we don't have to get those kids in here. Google what that is. And that is part of the way that the Jewish people showed they were part of the covenant. Secondly, they would do, this, this pertained to food laws, what you would eat and what you would not eat. The Jews had particular things they would not eat. If you go in the grocery store today, you can go and get a Hebrew national hot dog. They are fantastic. There's only seven of them, not eight, because seven is number perfection. And also, they are kosher certified, which means that they don't have any pork products in it, and they have been cleared by a rabbi for you to eat. So in Judaism, they have... They have these hot dogs, or not hot dogs, they have these things you cannot eat, shellfish, pork, they have all these different things. And so keeping these ritual dietary laws was part of something in Judaism that these, these apparent false teachers here are trying to carry over into Christianity. Plus, we can look in Galatians, and that's the major place that Paul would deal with these issues of these Jews trying to, trying to put this Jewish law on people for salvation. We, we also see that... Um, festivals and rituals, like rituals, religious rituals are part of this. And so what these guys are teaching is that, yes, you need faith in Christ, but you must also follow the law. You must be circumcised. You must do these Jewish food laws. And, and you must observe these rituals. And Paul calls these guys out in no uncertain terms and tells them that they, this is hogwash. And that is one thing we need to get a hold of in the church. Make sure we grasp really clearly. Faith in Christ alone and what he has done is the only way for you to come to God. If it's faith plus anything else, that's a false gospel. If it's faith plus good works, false gospel. If it's a faith but add these rituals, it's a false gospel. The central theme of the gospel is that Christ has done the work in his graciousness. He has come to earth, and he lived a life, a perfect life, that we couldn't live. He died a death that he shouldn't have died, vicariously taking on sin, and he is raised on the third day, and he's coming again. 
all of our hope is not in our good deeds or being better or doing sound works or doing religious rituals. All of our hope is in the finished work of Jesus, and we must turn from our sins and trust him, and that is the way into the kingdom, the way into salvation. Anything else is a false gospel, and we are prone to go towards false gospels. You know why? Because we can't see the promises, but we can see the ritual. You can see circumcision. You could see that you're obeying the food laws. You could see these things. But faith is, is, is confidence in things hoped for and not seen. And that is we put all of our trust in Jesus. And that is why Paul will rebuke this harder than anything that you will see. In fact, most of the rebukes that you see in Scripture aren't about somebody's end times view or their view about whether somebody can drink alcohol or not. The major times that Paul gets in someone's face and says, stop it, is when the gospel is at the forefront of the issue. And that is the good news. You get this. Just, just, just soak this in. If you don't understand this, I hope it just, just sinks in on you. If you are right before God, it's not by anything you did. It's all his finished work. Oh, that's good news. And if anyone stands in front of that, they should. It's time to take the gloves off. And it's time to fight for that. Because this is what he says at the end. He says, to the pure, this is a little complicated, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient and unfit for any good work. And so he wraps this up by giving a warning to those who think that they know God, but their actions don't prove that to be true. Verse 15, you got to think about food loss for a minute. For a Jew, if you are ceremonially clean, everything you touch, unless you do something unclean, is pure. However, let's say, for example, a Jewish guy got tricked into going to Red Lobster, all right? And it's endless shrimp, and he's like, I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to throw down on some endless shrimp. Now, that person becomes several, and you guys know there was not a Red Lobster back then. You, you know, okay, you're good. They throw down on some endless shrimp. Now, everything they touch is unclean until they would purify themselves according to the Old Testament principles and statutes. Sacrifices would have to be made. Times of cleansing would have to be done. They'd have to be declared clean by a priest. They would be, everything they touch would be pure, and would be in that state of having just eaten shellfish, which is, you know, not kosher. Everything they touched in their house would be, uh, would be unclean, defiled. So they come, you had red lobster, they're driving in the car, now your car is unclean because you've been in it. And you didn't do the ritual, so then you go and open the door to your house. Now your door is unclean. And then you go lay in the bed, and now the bed is unclean. Then you go to the bathroom, the bathroom is unclean. And you go to, you go to different places, and it's unclean because you touched it, and you were, you were ceremonial, ceremonially defiled. That is the background to verse 15, which it says this, To the pure, all things are pure. To the person who's not been defiled, everything they touch is pure unless they do something and touch something unclean. But... To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. See, Paul is rising above this purity, impurity by food to saying, this impurity that I'm talking about 
is about belief. And he says, those, those who are unpure and do not believe the true gospel, the gospel plus nothing equals salvation. They are the ones who are pure. Those who are defiled and unbelieving, they're the ones who believe in the gospel plus circumcision, gospel plus Jewish ritual, gospel plus something else equals unclean. And everything they touch, if you believe that, everything they touch in their unbelieving way makes everything unpure. And then it says this, and because of their impurity and their disbelief, their consciences and minds are defiled. They don't feel sin like they should, feel conviction over sins like they should, which is conscience. They don't think clearly like they should. And that, is, that leads to verse 16, which says this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Jesus would talk about this several places. In Luke chapter 6, he talks about that. He, and Jesus said this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so here's the deal. It is possible to look very religious and even to know answers and even correct answers, but to not know God, and the evidence that you not know God would be in your actions. And so Paul is reasserting this point. Sound doctrine equals godliness. If you say you believe and your belief is a reality, it will result in godly behavior. If it does not, you are deceiving yourself. And these false teachers are doing just that. And what are they rendered? They are rendered detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, this stands in almost direct contrast to something Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3.16 about the Word of God. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, doctrine, for reproof, for correction, rebuking, and for training in righteousness, what? That the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Those who disbelieve and walk in a seared conscience and an unbelieving mind, they think they know God, but they don't. Their actions prove it, and they are unfit for anything good. I want you to know something. If you believe in the gospel, you now are created for good works that will overflow out of this new life, this new birth, and you will be surprised what God can do with a life surrendered to him. Do you realize that there is great power in a surrendered life to Jesus? That there may not be power in you. It's like when I turned that corner and I was getting in that dude's face, I was going to rebuke him in the Toys R Us, and I thought I had great power, and the great, great, great power was not in me and my five foot nine self. The great, the great power was behind me that I had back up. Your great power, your great, what God can do in you is amazing, but it involves being cemented in the truth of Scripture, in sound doctrine, letting that overflow in your life in obedience and worship of God through your life. And then then you become fit for every good work. Doctrine makes a difference. That's why we must correct false teaching. And that's why when we believe 
and we follow suit with our belief. When, when we believe what's right and we live in a godly manner, then God can use our lives in great ways to impact great amount of people, not because of us, but because of his power that works in us. And that is good news. Church is not for the faint of heart. Yes, it's for those who are fainting in need of grace. When we come, we have some truth to stand on, guys. We're not Gumby when it comes to what we believe. We're not care bears when it comes to somebody going after the gospel. We have to stand on the truth because when we believe the truth, we live the truth, and there's great power in that. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to invite Mary to come up, and I'm going to invite our um, communion team to come forward. We're going to respond today through communion. Communion is a symbol of what Christ has done, of his body broken, his blood spilled. As we pass these out, Mary's going to lead us in, in some, some time of music. And um, we're going to take, in a, mo- in a few minutes after all the elements are passed out, uh, we'll take it together. If you're a believer in Jesus, please partake in the supper with us. And what I'd like you to do is to uh, ask yourself the question, am I believing the gospel? And if I'm believing the gospel, are my actions showing that I believe the gospel? And if those things are true, do I realize today that I'm fit for every good work? And that you have, through Christ, been equipped for what he's called you to do? If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that is the gospel, the doctrine in which we're going to live and die on. We pray that you would turn from your sins and trust Christ. You don't have to walk an aisle, sign a card, or do anything like that. Where you are, turn from your sins, trust Christ, and you will know eternal life. Let's take a moment and just resonate on this truth. And God said something to you, respond to that as you would. And then we will take communion in a minute. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the upper room with his disciples. And he had taken bread and we had broken. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it in. 
similar fashion, took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, taken and drink. As often as we do this, we proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, you're good. Your love endures forever. We pray, Lord, that we would be bold enough to stand against error and that we would be wise in the scriptures and in the knowledge of the gospel. We would stand for that. We would teach it. We would love it and we would live by it. Lord, we pray today that you would just raise up a church that just loves the gospel and won't tolerate untruth. A church that's devoted to the scriptures. God, we pray that you would bring salvation through that gospel to those who might be in here and do not have a relationship with you. You're good, God, and we just, we worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd stand, we're going to be dismissed with these words. This is the benediction. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk in his grace, his peace, and his truth. You're dismissed. God bless you.